This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, uh, we truly want to thank you for the book of Isaiah. We thank you that we've been able to go through it. And we pray that this morning, once again, that as we read of your words in Isaiah, that you help us to take it to heart, the lessons that you spoke so many years ago to the people in uh, Babylon and Judah, and to see how it's really relevant for us today in the lives that we live in this earth. And we pray for you, for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, the question I'll ask you this morning is, what do you fear? Okay, so do you fear anything? Are there things that you fear? What do you fear? Now, obviously, some of us have phobias. You know, some of us might fear flying. Uh, I know of one of the pastors here who has this great fear of lizards. Okay, some of you may fear spiders. But I guarantee that's one thing that we all fear. And really, that is uh, the fear of what people think. Right? So I was reading this book many years ago uh, called Why Zebras Don't Have Ulcers. And uh, it actually said that uh, because we are social animals, right? we are social beings, we are very scared of what people think of us. So one of the greatest things that we fear is the fear of people's insults, the fear of people's disapproval, the fear of people's estimation of us. So last week, my wife pointed out this uh, really sad article for me that uh, appeared in her Facebook about how, you may, you may have read about this in you know, one of your feeds, something about how uh, there's this grandfather in China who gave his uh, one-year-old, oh, sorry, one-month-old grandson some alcohol and the uh, the baby ended up dying. And actually, it's really sad because when you read it, what happened was they were having this one-month celebration for the baby, and uh, the grandfather was holding the baby, and then some of his relatives taunted him about how he couldn't drink uh, unless the baby drank first. And because of his fear of what his relatives thought, uh, he ended up killing the baby. So you can see how it's very true that we can actually go to life fearing what people think, and it actually hurts us in the way that we live. And as we come to the book of Isaiah chapter 50, as we've been going through the whole book of Isaiah this year, the original context was that the original hearers of Isaiah 50 lived in great fear. They lived in a time of great fear of the Babylonians. They had real fear of the kings and the princes and the people of Babylon. Because what had happened was uh, this Book, this part of the, the book of Isaiah was really written primarily to the people who were living before or during the time of the exile to Babylon, where God's people in Judah, in Jerusalem, the capital, they, they'd actually been colonized, uh, they'd been oppressed, the country was destroyed, and they'd been exiled and brought to Babylon. Uh, okay, so you can keep going through the pictures. Yep. Okay. So, really, it was like the situation, if you want to imagine, like Singapore under the Japanese during World War II. So, near my house, uh, just five minutes walk from my house, is this place called the former, the old Ford Factory Museum. Okay, so, uh, I don't think many Singaporeans go there, but probably some tourists. 
might, might, might visit there, right? Uh, but if you go to the old Ford factory, it, it is actually the place where uh, apparently uh, the British surrendered to the Japanese, and it's now a war memorial, and it recounts the time of uh, Singapore under Japanese occupation. So when you think of that period, uh, Singapore under Japanese occupation, uh, what is the mood of that time? The mood of the Singaporeans under Japanese occupation. It was a time of fear. Right? It was a time of great fear. Uh, my grandfather on my father's side, uh, well, he was dead by the time I was born, but my dad told me that uh, he used to own a bicycle shop and uh, he repaired the tire of a <coughs> Japanese soldier but then uh, I think that the repair didn't go very well and the tire punctured again after a few kilometers down the road. So the Japanese soldier came back and beat him with the butt of his rifle. So this was a time of real fear of men, right? The, the fear of the Japanese who colonized Singapore during that time. So this is the sort of period that we're looking at that God's people were listening to Isaiah chapter 50. And today we're looking at uh, the third of what is called the servant songs, right? So we've been introduced to this mysterious person called the servant of the Lord. Okay, so we've gone through uh, Isaiah 42, we've gone through Isaiah 49, and we've gone through today now, we're going to go through Isaiah chapter 50. And it's the introduction of this person called the servant of the Lord, who is the solution to the fears of God's people. So I want you to turn to me in your Bibles, to Isaiah chapter 50, and I'm going to look from verse 4 at the moment in Isaiah 50. And it says, The, the sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. So in verse 4 here, the me is actually the servant, right? It's, it's God who's speaking to the servant. He wakens me, the servant, morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I've offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near let them who bring charges against me, let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. So here we see this incredible news of the servant of the Lord. And what is really unbelievable is that God instructs the servant to willingly be abused humiliated, and mistreated. So, usually, if someone wants to hit me on the back, right, uh, I would run away. I, uh, you know, I, I mean, when I was younger, unfortunately, I was quite naughty, and I got caned a few times by my parents, and my mate. And usually, when you get caned, what's the instinct of, of you? you? You don't sort of like, yes, can I have another one, please, right? You start running away, right? Uh, you start, you know, uh, doing silly things like hiding the cane so they'll never find the cane again, or destroying it, right? Uh, usually if someone spits on your face, you, you turn your face away, right? If someone wants to pull your beard, you, 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 you block them off. But here it says the servant 
sets his mind to willingly, not rebelliously, not to turn away, but to offer himself to abuse, humiliation, and mistreatment. Now, usually when someone is abused, someone is mistreated in this way, you know, especially like in the book of Job, they were struggling with this. People would think, oh, this person des- deserves it, right? They- they've done something wrong, uh, so therefore they deserve to be beaten or mis- mistreated. It's a bit like, you know, if you're caned as a child, right? I mean, you don't get caned for no reason. Usually you're caned for a reason, right? But what we read here is, shockingly, the servant is an innocent sufferer, right? He's an innocent sufferer because he challenges his accuser and says, you know, come and come and stand before me and prove your case before me. And he's confident that he is innocent because he says, God himself will vindicate me. God has actually shown me that there are no charges against me. So in Singapore, I have to ask my wife uh, this, the highest court in Singapore uh, in the legal system is uh, the Court of Appeal in Singapore. So once the Court of Appeal says that you're not guilty, uh, you can never have any charges brought against you, right? Because you've, you've, you've gone through all the court system and now you've been, you've been declared once and for all guilty or innocent. And so if you're declared innocent at the Court of Appeal in Singapore, you are innocent once and for all, right? There's, there's no one else who can bring charges against you on that charge anymore. And that's what the, the servant of the Lord is saying here. He's saying that if God himself, who is the Holy One, right? so in Isaiah we've been going through and through and God is always known as the Holy One. He is the highest level of holiness. If he declares the servant to be innocent, then the servant is confident that he is, he is innocent. There is no one who can bring charges against him. So here we read of the servant who is suffering willingly and who suffers innocently. Now, I imagine that if I was a person reading Isaiah chapter 50 all those hundreds of years ago, I would be very puzzled, right? Who is this servant? What's happening here? Why does he suffer innocently? Why does he suffer willingly? Now, we are truly blessed because we live on this side of the cross. Uh, we live on this side of Jesus coming. And we know that this servant passage is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ because we know that Jesus willingly gave himself to mistreatment and abuse and humiliation. And Jesus suffered innocently. So in the Gospels, which record the life of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 26, uh, this is what it says, right? So those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they could not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man 
sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? So here we see that Jesus, he doesn't answer back to the charges. He willingly suffers. He's an innocent sufferer. And it's a, it's a great encouragement for us because like someone in my Bible study group said that it actually shows the power of God, isn't it? That God knows in advance 700 years ago what's going to happen to his servant. God has power to control world history so that his son, the servant Jesus, would fulfill Isaiah 50. And he's a faithful God because God's word is proven to be true. Now, that's very encouraging for us today as we live in Singapore, uh, 700 years later. But for the original readers of Isaiah 50, they would be wondering, where is this servant? How long is it before he comes? And actually, when you think about it, the original hearers of Isaiah 50 had to wait a very long time. They waited 70 years in the exile. They waited about another 600 years before Jesus came. They would be waiting in the dark for a very, very, very long time. So as they were waiting for the servant Jesus to come, well, God says something very important, and that's where I printed out on the slide, right? So because uh, the images are so important that we need to look very carefully at what is being said here. So let's look at verse 10 to 11. Because as they wait for the servant to come, God speaks to them about how they are to wait. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. But now all of you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, Go and walk in the light of your fires, and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Now, when you read this passage, it's actually something which we read, and we, if you read too quickly, you don't really understand what's being said. But if you read very carefully, it seems to be saying that if you're on the dark Stay in the dark, but trust and rely on God. Because the temptation would be to light your own fire and to provide your own flaming torches in order to find your way out of the darkness. Now, I think here the picture of the darkness must be uh, the fact that they are in exile. They're, they're struggling under the rule of the Babylonians. They're in that dark place. And the light that they are tempted to light is to use their own wisdom, to use human wisdom, to use the wisdom of their day, to use their own resources to try to find their way out of their dark situation. Now, if we've been reading the book of Isaiah, this is the temptation that God's people has always succumbed to, right? So as we've been reading through in the time of Assyrians when they were being attacked, remember they kept relying on their own resources. They relied on diplomacy. 
They, they rely on going to Egypt to find alliances. They relied on other gods. They relied on uh, armies. So in Isaiah chapter 5, uh, hey, did I put Isaiah chapter 5? Yes, I did. Okay. Uh, it said much earlier. Okay, so now we're up to chapter 50, right? So in Isaiah chapter 5, it said, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. And in Isaiah chapter 8, God rebukes them for turning to uh, other gods, right? When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a, a people inquire of their God? Consult who? Cons why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. They will be when they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. They'll be thrust into utter darkness. So, if you look at this passage, if you go back to um, the passage itself, you'll see that what is really important is that the lessons that are given to the people in Isaiah 50 are actually relevant to us today. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I find myself in a dark situation, I want to get out of that dark situation. I'm tempted to find my own way out of that dark situation. But God actually may be telling me to stay in that dark situation and to trust and rely on Him rather than to light my own fire, use my own wisdom to find my own way out of that dark situation. See, being a Christian today, being God's people, doesn't mean that life is a bed of roses. It doesn't mean that there's a walk in the park. Right? Being a Christian is... Uh, all sunshine and blue sky, right? that's the lie of the prosperity gospel. Being a Christian often means that we find ourselves in dark places where we are fearful, where we are suffering, where we face hardship. But God tells us to stay, to trust and rely on Him. So I remember many years ago, uh, we had this... Uh, uh, this guy in our membership baptism class. I mean, this was a long time ago, so you you all probably forgotten him, so it's fine for me to use this illustration. We've had so many membership baptism classes anyway, right? So there's this person in our membership and baptism classes, and I remember him really well. And at the end of the baptism class, he was scheduled to be baptized at church. But his father contacted him and told him that if he was baptized, he would be cut off from the family will and he would be ostracized from the family. So I remember talking to this guy and, uh, you know, he was in a dark place, right? He was, it, was a, it was a dark place for him, uh, you know, facing rejection from his family, opposition from his father. And I said, well, you know, you have to rely on God. You have to trust in God and you have to put God first. But, he chose in many ways to light his own fire, to, to light his own flame and said, no, I'm going to find my way out, out of this situation. Uh, I, will, I will kind of like compromise my family and my dad. I'll stop coming to church, but I'll read the Bible myself. I won't be baptized. Well, he found his way out of that dark situation, but he's not a Christian today. 
And I think we can do the same thing, right? We may find ourselves in dark situations, in, in various aspects of our lives, uh, from being a Christian, being God's people. Uh, but the Bible tells us here very clearly to trust and rely on God and to wait upon Him rather than to light your own fire, your own instincts, your own resources, try to find your way out because at the end of the day, God actually says that uh, you will actually find yourself uh, being judged instead. So recently, I, I read this, reread this book that I would like to recommend to you. It's called Dig Deeper. It's about reading God's Word and I think it's excellent. It's not very thick at all. And in that book, he was saying that actually the top two issues today in terms of reading in the Bible is the issue of homosexuality and the role of men and women in marriage and in church. And he says that uh, if you stick to the Bible, you'll find yourself in very unpopular positions on these two issues right, in the world that we live in. And in the book itself, uh, I want to quote what he said. He says, surely uh, it must mean something else or the Bible needs to be interpreted in a different way. Right? That's the normal way that people in dark situations will then say, well, let's, how, do, how do we get ourselves out of this dark situation where the world hates us on these positions? But in the book as well, as, and I think it's consistent with what the Bible is saying here, is that these things are actually following our own light, our own ingenuity to get us out of the dark place, but rather we must hold on to what the Bible is saying and to trust and rely on God even when we find ourselves in those dark places of persecution. Now, as we come to this passage, part of the, the, the reason why they want to get out of this dark place is because of the fear of men. So if you look at the passage that we looked at just a moment ago, the next slide, you, you'll see that the, the word that keeps be re, being repeated in chapter 50 and 51 is the word fear. Okay, so it's no surprise that verse, uh, that verse 10, the passage we just looked at, begins with this word fear, right? Who among you fears the Lord? and obeys the word of his servant. Because immediately after, in verse 7, in chapter 57, verse 7, he contrasts that with, with the fear that the, that the people had in Babylon of men, of the Babylonians, of people. See, in verse 7 it says, okay, Hear me, you who know what is right, you people who have taken my instruction to heart, do not fear. Right, do not fear the reproach of men. Do not be terrified by their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment. The worm will devour them, devour them like wool. But my righteousness will last forever. My salvation through all generations. So, the beginning talks about those who fear God. But later on, God tells them not to fear men, the reproach of men. Don't be terrified by the reproach of men. Now, when you live under oppressive rule, colonized rule, you really fear and are terrified of people, right? I mean, we don't feel that fear today, right? Um, when I was uh, in school in Singapore, the text that we had to read in secondary school, I remember, was this book called The Son of Singapore. I don't know, maybe some of the 
older people can remember reading this book. But I found it to be really interesting. But he recounts of his days uh, in the World War II and how when the Japanese soldiers came to his kampong, uh, all the wives and the daughters would run and hide in the, in the swamp, right? And all the young men would also disappear out into the fields. And the only people left in the village would be the very young children and uh, the very old. And the reason was because they lived in fear and terror of the Japanese coming in and either abusing the, the women or taking away the men to be killed. So when God says here, do not fear right, or be terrified, he's not sort of speaking and exaggerating. These are real things that the people, God's people, feared in Babylon. But he says, look, don't fear and don't be terrified. Why? Because as it says here, it's because the moth will eat them up like a garment and the worm will devour them like wool. But my righteousness will last forever, my salvation through all generation. So what he's saying is that the people who you so fear today, who you're terrified of, they, they are just like, they last a short time. Right? Whereas God's salvation, God's reality, God's eternity in heaven is forever. So last week, so you, you may notice this week I'm wearing a slightly different blue blue shirt, right? You know, I always wear my blue shirt. So last week, it was very embarrassing. At the 4 p.m. service, someone said to me, uh, hey, look, I don't want to embarrass you, but you've got a hole in your shirt, and while you're preaching, I couldn't stop looking at it, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, and I was thinking to myself, my goodness, this shirt, you know, these shirts are not cheap, right? These shirts are expensive. You buy them, and I only wear them like one Sunday every week, and they last only two years. And... And that's the picture that, that God is trying to say, right? He's trying to say, these people that you're so fearful of, they're just there for a short time. They're like clothes which get eaten by moths and worms and they do not last. Whereas, whereas, whereas my reality, my salvation, it lasts through eternity, right? So why do you fear this persecution for this short time in order to give up on the eternity of God's salvation, right? It's such a bad trade-off. But it goes on because in verse 12 to 13, it continues on with this theme of fear. And this is what God says. He says, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you fear mortal men, the sons of men who are but grasped, that you forget the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, that you live in constant terror every day because of the wrath of the oppressor who is bent on destruction. For where is the wrath of the oppressor? Now you see here, the main problem with fear is that if you fear men, then you forget God. I think that's true, isn't it? If you truly fear the opinion of people, and you become very obsessed with that fear, then you forget God. And when that happens, uh, that is so tragic because you, the, these men are like grass, right? The, the, the people are like grass. They're here today, they're gone tomorrow. But, but because you're so obsessed with the short-term fear of these people, you lose the eternal salvation that God gives you. Now, 
The other answer to fear comes actually as we go through the passage, and, and unfortunately, we, it's a very long passage, so I'm going to break it up for you. But God promises that He will save people and set them free from the bondage of uh, the, the, the bondage of these men. So in verse 14, He says, The cowering prisoners will soon be set free. They will not die in their dungeon, nor will they lack bread. For I am the Lord your God, who turns up the sea so that its waves roar. The Almighty is my name. I put my words in your mouth and I covered you with the shadow of my hand. I who set the heavens in place, who laid the foundations of the earth, and who say to Zion, you are my people. So here we see that God says, look, these people you're so afraid of, they are like grass. But compared to me, I have power to save. I'm able to keep the words of my promises to save you because why? I'm a powerful God who rules the sea. I'm a powerful God, the Lord Almighty, who sets the foundations of the earth. Now, I think that's not really enough for God to impress upon us, right? It's okay, okay, God, we look outside, we see God has made the earth. But God is a much more relational God than that. And he looks at two mighty acts of history that he has done in the history of God's people and says, look, because I've done these things, when you look back at what I've done in history, then you know that I have power and might to save. So at the beginning of uh, chapter 51, this is what he says. He says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. When I called him, he was but one, and I blessed him and made him many. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins he will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, and thanksgiving and the sound of singing. So, as they are waiting in the dark, as they are trusting and relying on God, he's saying, look, you can wait for this servant. Why? Because look back to my promises to Abraham. So this goes back to the foundation of God's people, Israel. Right at the very beginning, in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 12, God had made a promise to Abraham when he was one person, 75 years old, that out of one person, he will make him into a great nation. So the Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Again in Genesis chapter 15, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, 
what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So here, God says, Look, you want to see that I have the power to save? Look at what I did. Out of one man, the 75-year-old Abram, I created the whole nation of uh, Israel, right? So out of, can you imagine out of one man, God made enough people to populate the whole nation of Israel. Okay. If, if only Singapore had that sort of birth rate, right? <laughs> you could imagine how the Singapore government would be so happy, right? But, but God promised one man in his 75 year, uh, in his 70s the ability to have children like, like the stars in the sky. And so God says, well, look, if I can do that, I have power to save you, right? Wait in the dark, wait for the servant. The second mighty act that God recounts in this passage to give them faith to wait for the servant and that he has the power to save is the act of bringing Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. So in verse 9 of chapter 51, it says, Awake, awake, clothe yourself with strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab? So Rahab here is Israel, okay? To pieces, who pierced that monster through. Was it not you who dried up the, the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea, so that the redeemed might cross over? The ransom of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. So the first act in history that Isaiah, sorry, Isaiah 50 and 51 looks at is Abraham becoming a great nation. The second act is actually the miracle of the Exodus, right, which is sort of like encompassing everything that we read in Exodus, where God gave those miraculous ten plagues to make uh, Pharaoh let his people go. But more particularly, it was the parting of the Red Sea, right? Where it says there, God dried up the sea and brought his people through so that they could go to the promised land. So God says, look, if I can, from one, one man, Abram, raise up the nation of Israel, if I can, through the person of Moses, the promises given to Moses, take you out of bondage of Egypt through the miracle of the Red Sea, then surely I can have the power to save. Right? So stay in the dark, trust and rely on me, and don't fear man, because I'm more mighty than man. Now I think that for us today, we don't just have two great miracles in history, or events in history that we look back to, but we look to the person of Jesus Christ. So I remember this uh, very famous evangelist in Australia called John Chapman. And he says that uh, when he has dark days, when he has days where 
he doubts God's goodness, when he's struggling, he asks himself three questions. He said, did Jesus come to the earth? Did Jesus die on the cross? Did Jesus rise from the dead? If the answer to those three questions is yes, 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 that doesn't matter how he feels that day, right? Nothing has changed. He said nothing has changed and God is still faithful. God is still powerful to save and he will still have faith in God. Now, I think that's very true for us today. We look back at the mighty works of God in history, the promises to Abraham, uh, the exodus from Egypt, And we see the person of Jesus. And and when we look back, we say God is mighty to save. Why should we fear man? Why should we fear the dark? So there's a song that we sing at church uh, occasionally called Mighty to Save, right? Savior, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He's mighty to save from forever author of salvation. He rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. So because Jesus conquered the grave, We know that God is mighty to save. He has the power to save. So we should never be scared of men and people. We should not try to light our own fire and get out of the dark. But we should just trust and rely on God. So in conclusion, uh, one of my uh, favorite movies uh, is this movie called The Day After Tomorrow. Have you all seen this movie? It's quite interesting. Uh, I can use the DVD or the, or the Blu-ray if you, if you want to watch it. But it's about uh, how this is a, a future, actually may not be so imaginary anymore, right? Where uh, there's global warming. And because of global warming, uh, the whole of uh, the USA becomes like cold, like the Arctic North Pole, right? It's as cold as, I mean, imagine the whole of North America becomes cold as uh, the Arctic. So uh, the lead character... Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, he's trapped in the New York Public Library. Okay, so in the last phone call before uh, all the phones go off, uh, his father tells him, stay where you are, right? Stay where you are. Don't move because there's this Arctic cold front coming. And, you know, if you come out, if you go out of the, the public library, you will surely die. And in the second half of the movie, you know, the, the people, they, they don't want to wait anymore. They start trying to escape from New York City to make their way down south to Mexico. But then, um, they didn't build a wall then. Anyway, so, all right, so, so, so Jake Gyllenhaal and his friends, they say, no, 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 we can't leave the New York public library. We've got to stay here. We've got to wait for my dad to come and save me. He told me, stay, don't, don't leave. I will come and get you. And so by the the end of the movie, well, actually, you know the ending because the father does come and does save his son. And why? Because he has the power to save, right? Because his father is this Arctic explorer and he's got this Arctic equipment, all the sleds and skis and poles and everything else, right? Whereas all the people there, they don't. And I think in, in many ways, that's what uh, we've read today, isn't it? God tells us that he has the power to save us, right? He is mighty to save. He has saved in the past. He has raised up from Aaron, the, the nation of Israel. He saves God's people out of Egypt through the Exodus, the Red Sea, into the Promised Land. He sent us Jesus to die and to rise again. And he tells us to stay in the dark, to wait, to trust and rely on him. Don't fear men. Don't light your own fire. 
Don't, don't use your own resources to try to escape into the light yourself because there is no future in that way. So as we look at today's passage, I don't know if you find yourself in that dark place or whether that dark place will come in the future. But when it does, always remember that God is powerful. He is mighty to save. Trust and rely on Him and not light your own fire to escape the fear of people, the fear of men. But keep staying in and waiting for God to save you because we know that He is mighty to save and that when Jesus comes again, He will save us for eternity. And the fear that we have of men is like grass or like a, a, you know, a piece of shirt that is actually wearing out. It's just a temporary thing. So keep trusting and relying on our God who is mighty to save. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that being a Christian doesn't mean that it is a life of a bed of roses where everything is sunshine and blue skies, but indeed there will be dark days, the dark days where there will be hard times of suffering, of hardship, where men and women and people around us may be offended by us, may frown upon us, may persecute us, may insult us. Help us not to be tempted to light our own fires, to make our own light, to find our own way out of that darkness but rather that we can indeed trust in you for you are a mighty God. You are the one who rules the waves. You are the one who laid the foundations of the earth. You are the one who out of your promises made the one person, Abram, who was in the 70s, become a great nation. You're the one who led your people out of the bondage of Pharaoh and Egypt through the Red Sea to the promised land. And most importantly, you are the one who sent your servant, Jesus, your son, to come on earth, to die on the cross, and to rise again. So teach us, dear Father, powerfully from your word today, to wait faithfully upon you, to trust and rely upon your salvation. For the sufferings and the persecution of the dark times that we will face are merely like coming from people of grass and of clothes that will wear out but your eternity in heaven is forever. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.